With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another episode of the Yukon Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm here with Daniel Connolly, editor of the Yukon Blog, and special guest Patrick Martin. Uh, Patrick is a writer for the Yukon Blog. He's our current men's soccer guy. He also does some men's hoops and is currently our Kemba Walker correspondent as well. Patrick, thank you for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me. Connolly, how does that feel that I just hopped you as the Kimball Walker correspondent? I'm not sure I actually ever held that title, so it's all you there. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Happy to be here. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, so while we're at it, Kimball Walker um, has been having a great season for the Celtics, seemed to be showing up in the playoffs. Uh, it's been a little up and down for him this series in the Eastern Conference Finals, huh? Yeah, it's... I'll backtrack for a second to the semifinals against Toronto. He really limped across the finish line in that series. Uh, went two for 11 uh, in game six that they lost. Went five for 16 in the win. And people had been starting to talk about how he was struggling and how Tatum was really, was really carrying the load. Um, did not help that he started the first game with the, the Heat going six of 19. Uh, he has picked it up a little bit since then, scoring 20 points in his next three games. But as anyone knows, the Celtics have really struggled beating themselves. They, they just can't crack the Miami Heat, uh, despite their not great stature, almost kind of like in NBA circles. Uh, and a lot of that has fallen back on Kemba, saying that he cannot be the guy to take him over. And then even more on the defensive end, you see the Miami Heat switching on him you know, they are attacking him on switches. He's by far the smallest guy on the court, and they're just abusing him, whether it be Goran Dragic or Duncan Robinson is shooting over him. Tyler Hero had 36 points in 35 freaking minutes yesterday. So it's been tough to see Kemba honestly exposed, but at the same time, he's still Kemba. He still has that leadership. He still has served up countless clutch plays in the playoffs so you just have to hope as a Celtics fan and as, as a UConn fan that they right the ship and at least make this series interesting. Yeah, I think some of Kemba's criticism has been deserved. But at the same time, I think it's unfair that people were expecting him to come in and be like the lead star player on this team because he's never really – well, he's been that by association with Charlotte, but – He's a really, really good point guard, but you're never going to put the whole team load on him. And I think a lot of times during these last few series, that's kind of happened. And the big issue the Celtics have had, for the most part, is getting ahead early in games, but then blowing that lead late in games. And a persistent theme throughout those collapses is that the Celtics offense just reverts into one-on-one isos for the last like quarter and a half. And that's not Kemba's game. And obviously he can create space with the best of them, but the offense is at its best when it's moving and 
the ball's constantly in motion and guys can get in and out of spaces. And I think that suits Kemba's game the best where he can use his distribution and his dribbling skills to get other guys open. And with the way they've played the last 15, 20 minutes of games, it's just not suiting him. So I think that's really a big problem for them. And at the same time, it seems like defenses are, really keying in on Kemba and forcing the other guys, the Jason Tatums, the Jalen Browns, Marcus Smarts of the world to beat them. There hasn't really been a consistent answer to that either. Yep. I agree. And you, you talk about the defense. The hope was when the heat knocked off the bucks that, Oh, well they can hide Kemba on someone like Duncan Robinson. Well, Duncan Robinson has proven to be automatic if he has a half second open. And Kemba, you know, cracking six feet maybe in, you know, heel shoes. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're putting him around screens, double screens, pivots, and he just can't get around them and, 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 and close the gap. So the plan to hide him hasn't really worked, and they've had to put him on Goran Dragic, who's 6'5". There's just a lot of mismatches. Eric Spolstra is a great coach. He's matched Brad Stevens in that regard. So it has, I think, taken a little bit of the luster off of Kemba's big, you know, opening season with the Celtics. But like you said, it's still not over, and they still have a chance to really make something happen and make things interesting. So we don't need to dive too much into you know the Celtics' chances here and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and uh, you know, I noted uh, referring to Brad Stevens as the coaching genius against a guy who's won multiple championships. But um, what I will just add about Kemba is, isn't he also, I mean, he's coming off of an injury. Um, You would have to imagine that that's a a lingering issue. And then also uh, they, they really don't seem to be looking at him in, in kind of those late, late game situations, which is also sad to see. If you have the last shot, I kind of understand from the Celtics perspective why you'd give it to a guy like Jason Tatum because generally when the game's on the line, you give it to your best scorer. But at the same time, Kemba has such a huge reputation both from college and in the NBA too of hitting these game-winning shots, being able to create these incredible step-back shots on his own and just making plays late in game. So it is a little head scratching that for some reason they're kind of going away from him late in games when that's when he really, really shines. So far in this playoffs, and this will be my last point is he had that step back against Philadelphia. I think that was game three. And then in game four against Toronto, he had that beautiful play. That was the last time I hopped on this pod with you guys was to talk about that incredibly poised pass that he made where he found himself in the lane and dropped off to Tice for the dunk. You know, Toronto won that game off of a fluke three, but those were the two times he had the ball in his hands and had a chance to win it. Uh, The other two times he had it, Toronto doubled him and made him pass the ball out. So I don't understand what Conley was saying is why can't Stevens just have a two-man game with Tatum and Kemba Walker, like a high screen and roll if they double – You've got shooters on the side, and you just play the matchups and see if whoever has the better matchup between Tatum and, and Walker, that's who you go with. Because I feel like they both have the ability to win that shot, and Kemba's shown it. So we'll see. 
I agree. Give Kemba the ball late. Let Kemba cook. It is imperative. Hopefully we'll have more Huskies in the NBA to talk about, you know, in future years. And it's not just one guy uh, still alive in the playoffs. But until then, you can enjoy the action of the WNBA, where there are tons of former Huskies. Uh, Dan Connolly's women's bas- UConn Women's Basketball Podcast, Chasing Perfection, is where you can get all the commentary on that. But we do have some fun, other fun updates from around the professional ranks. Um, Patrick, you're the soccer expert. So uh, why don't you tell us about another former Husky who's, who's really achieving in the pros? Yeah, Andre Blake, some would say the face of MLS goalies, um, has once again proven himself to be kind of like, you know, the staple of Philadelphia Union's, you know, successful season. They, uh, they played FC Cincinnati last night. You know, you know me and FC Cincinnati. I was watching that game closely, hoping they would, you know, take down my local team. He made a basically game-saving stop in the 85th minute that sent that ensured that there was a 0-0 draw. Uh, it has continued to be – I looked up some stats. He has four clean sheets so far in this restarted season. The Union sit tied for second in the East, so they're set to make a deep run in the playoffs. Uh, he's been very sharp once again as you know the Union continue to be kind of the model of the MLS where they have a bunch of youth players. They have steady veterans kind of sprinkled throughout. You think also of Alejandro Bedoya. Uh, and it's great to see Blake at the back of all that. We might have mentioned this on an earlier podcast, but Andre Blake also won the – Golden Gloves goalkeeper of the MLS bubble tournament. Well, no, it's, it's just great to see him continuing to thrive. You know, he was an all-star last year. Uh, he's well-regarded throughout the league. And you know, he's got plenty of, plenty of miles left. I feel like he, he can continue this going for three or four more years. And for those who don't remember, Blake was uh, UConn class of 2014, the number one overall pick in the 2014 MLS draft. Uh, he was a three-time conference goalkeeper of the year going across the Big East and the AAC. Um, he was an absolute force at UConn. And, uh, yeah, great to see him him keeping that up. The only time we don't want him doing well is when the U.S. national team plays Jamaica because he has held down that number one spot for the longest time. And he's, he's tough to crack back there. Uh, Chris Wondolowski is not getting by him. We need a, we need a little bit more than that. Um, is, is he the reason the U.S. didn't qualify uh, last time for the World Cup? No, no. But he's, he was very tough in that Gold, Club, Gold Cup run. I think it was in 2017. So, yeah, he's a high-profile player internationally. Uh, and Connolly, you had a couple of updates from, from the pros as well, right? Right. Former first rounder in the MLS, Kwame Awua, actually now playing north of the border in his home country of Canada in the Canadian Premier League. His team, Forge FC, just won the Canadian Premier League championship. Yeah, I, I hope that league continues a nice run of success. You want to see all the leagues in, in North America continue to flourish. So the more soccer, the better is always what I would say. Yeah. So then in some baseball news, Former UConn closer, arguably the best reliever in program history, Jake Wallace got traded to the Red Sox, his hometown team. 
this past week, he was the player to be named later in a deadline deal for the Red Sox. Red Sox traded Kevin Pillar out to Colorado. I think it's an awesome move for all parties involved. Wallace grew up in Methuen, Mass., outside of Boston, grew up a huge Red Sox fan. The Red Sox were even looking at him out of college and were looking at him in the third round too, but he just didn't make it to them. Probably going to be rising through the Red Sox system pretty quickly because they have one of the worst pitching staffs in the majors and was reading one article today and a scout told Peter Gammons that Jacob Wallace might have the best stuff of any new England pitcher that that scout had ever seen. And then Gammons for his money said that when Wallace pitched on the Cape in 2018, he was by far the best reliever in the league, which is known to be the best for college baseball players. So his potential is really, really high. A lot of people think he could be a dominant closer. So, so, so wait a second, Connolly. Um, yeah. Does this mean now that the Red Sox will have a UConn, specific setup and closer technically if Matt Barnes continues to be the closer this is a very very good point yeah the Red Sox could lock down the end of games with two UConn guys which was recently what the Colorado Rockies were attempting to do because they obviously have Scott Oberg on the major league team right now but then in 2018 they drafted PJ Poulin who preceded Jake Wallace as UConn's closer and then immediately the year after drafted Wallace too. So yeah, a lot, a lot of UConn relievers coming up. That's good. That's good. And you mentioned Peter Gammons too. I, I th- saw it briefly on Twitter. So I, you might need to confirm this for me. Did he mention something that the, that they have had talks about that they're looking into acquiring George Springer next year when he becomes a free agent? Yeah. His name and the Red Sox have been connected for a couple years now as a possibility because for those who aren't big baseball fans, Red Sox center fielder Jackie Bradley Jr. is out of contract. So the Red Sox are possibly going to be needing outfield help this year. And George Springer is probably one of the better outfielders on the market. So obviously there's a New England connection, the UConn connection. Springer also apparently grew up a Red Sox fan. So that never hurts. He's coming off a pretty bad year, which in fairness, a lot of top hitters are coming off bad years this season. So I'm not sure how much of a market there will be for him. If he might just sign a one year prove it deal somewhere and then try and get a bigger contract next off season when he's hit better and the free agency market might be a little more, might be a little more flush with cash as opposed to coming off a COVID year. So I think it's definitely a possibility as just from a Red Sox perspective, I don't know how much sense it makes because they have a handful of outfield prospects coming up in the system. It's certainly a possibility. Maybe the Red Sox are just going for the all UConn team. And honestly, I can't argue with that strategy. Yeah. I think that's a winning formula. I think it's as as solid of an idea as you can get. And um, yeah, we need to separate George Springer from the, um, the, the culture of the Houston Astros because that's been a tough part for me now is uh, reckoning with, with whatever may be the, the history of that, but a um, whole lot of asterisks down there. Allegedly, allegedly, I think we can all agree. George Springer was not part of it. He had no idea what was going on and um, all of his home runs are uh, including the 
record for home runs in a World Series that he set could not possibly have been uh, accomplished unfairly, and and that our guy George Springer would never do that. We know all of no. those things to be true. So there's no way. There's no way. Yeah. Yep. Um, but yeah, fun, always fun to check in with those guys. Um, you know, the baseball team. If if you don't follow them, Jim Penders works miracles, has been working miracles up in stores. And uh, once uh, the next time his team takes the field, they'll get a brand new ballpark and it'll be well-deserved and hopefully a good time for, for people to go to. And it's a phenomenally beautiful ballpark that I think for where it stands, obviously UConn's not an SEC program or one of those giant programs down South, but for a Northeast program, the ballpark is just pretty much as nice as it comes. Yeah. You love to see it. You love to see it. And um, hockey, uh, the UConn men's hockey team, well, I guess all the hockey teams are going to be getting a new place to play as well. And Connolly, we got a few updates for the first time in a while on the status of UConn's hockey arena. Want to tell us about that? Right. So obviously the hockey rink on campus has been in the works since UConn joined Hockey East because that's one of the requirements for the conference. And it was supposed to open in 2017. Obviously, Hockey East isn't really holding their feet to the fire on that deadline just because of how successful UConn's been with their crowds at the XL Center and how well the XL Center does serve as a home for UConn men's hockey. But a arena still does need to get built. It's looking like it's slowly, slowly, slowly making its way towards actually becoming a reality. So back in 2018, the Board of Trustees finally approved the project. So that got one of the major hurdles out of the way, but it hasn't, it struggled to build any momentum since then. So the most recent report, there's a request for proposals out looking for a builder of the arena. What we know is it's going to have a capacity of 27,000, not from how it's worded in the proposal. It doesn't sound like it's going to be 27,000 seats plus standing room only, which there were some reports out that it might be like a 2,500 seat arena with standing room only included in there, which could possibly even bump it up to 4,000 from the sounds of it. It's like 27,000 or 2,700, sorry, capped max standing room only included with half of those being seat backs, which is up from the original arena was 2,500 seats with 500 seat backs. So that's a big upgrade construction is supposed to start in april this upcoming year april 2021 substantial completion is expected by october 2022 and then the hope is that it would be ready to go completely finished in december 2022 right for the end of the first half of the yukon men's hockey season the location slightly altered not dramatically different Originally, the plan was to connect it to Friedesites Forum, the already existing rink on UConn's campus that isn't up to hockey standards, so that they could still use some of the offices, upgrade the locker rooms, use those, just to have one giant hockey building connected. That seemed to have changed. The newest maps of the area show that it's going to be, if you have an idea of UConn and where this is, Ilot, there's obviously the larger part where the bus stop is, it kind of looks like it's going to be on that footprint. And then they're going to expand Ilot outside to have around, I think 360 cars is the number. So nothing's official yet, 
I mean, this project really just keeps getting pushed back further and further and who knows what even happens with the pandemic, but the request for proposal went out in September. So it seems like they're still moving forward with this project despite the pandemic. So hopefully they can finally get it finished just because the way the men's hockey team is recruiting right now, if they can have a legitimate on-campus rink that can compete with some of the best in hockey East, then they're really going to be cooking with gas. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's been such a work in progress and it feels like so wild that even, uh, even at this point now we're, we're talking, we're, we are seven or eight years uh, after the hockey East news and still, I mean, have not even broken ground on this project, which is, is wild to think about, but um yeah, I mean, I think it's good to hear that the the numbers are going up, the number of seatbacks going up. Hey, the drawings look nice. Uh, would like to see it go up a little bit earlier, but uh, yeah, totally agree. It, it would be huge for the program to be able to do something like that. Right now, the state of things uh, compared to their competition across Hockey East, you know, it's it's tough. It's tough for them to compete on that. Um, they do the best they can, and uh, they've done a damn good job in general. So. We, of course, are, are major supporters of the ICE bus, uh, but man, that, that is a long timeline, though. Hopefully they can get it done soon, and uh, yeah, I mean, just a complete revamping of that, that area the, where the soccer and baseball and baseball fields were uh, and where the hockey arena is. Fresh look to that part of campus, so it should be really cool. We're going to take a quick break and then talk... Our favorite sports, UConn football and basketball. All right. So uh, as of the recording of this podcast, uh, this is September 24th. Uh, we are into the, the fall, uh, as it were, for many people that the fall means the start of college football. Uh, for UConn fans this year, that has not necessarily been the case. Um, but I have to say... I've probably sent this message to to seven or eight different people individually, but while it has been a little bit relaxing not to have to see the UConn football scores that come out every weekend, there was some news about UConn potentially playing one game in the spring against UMass, uh, which, which could be somewhat interesting. Uh, UMass, Somewhat a little bit later, we we got word that UMass is working on maybe returning this season itself. Um, college football is again, as we said, just, it's going on in its own way. Um, teams are canceling games. UConn is pretty much the only one that has remained steadfast in its uh, desire to or or. Uh, you know, belief that it's safest and, and best not to have a season. Guys, how do we feel about UConn football not playing in the fall, maybe playing a game in the spring, and seeing college football go on without us? Yeah, I, I have to be with you on that, that it is kind of nice not to have to deal with it. Like, it's just so much – It it honestly does take a lot of effort and time, and we do – put a lot of that effort and time in, especially early in the season. And it's just really hard to cover a bad team. It just drags on. It drains you. It weighs on you. It's just nice. Obviously there's just 
not football aside, there's so much going on that it is nice to have this little break and not have to be working hard every week to cover things and just be able to breathe and deal with the other things that we all have going on. But at the same time, it does suck not being able to see UConn football this fall because obviously the past few years have been really bad, but who knows, maybe this year they could have turned a corner. At the start of last season, we did see some progress from them. Maybe it finally would have come to fruition this year and Randy Edsel's five-year vision would have really started to become visible. But I think the idea of playing UMass in the spring is really, really good, especially if UMass doesn't end up coming through with their plan to restart their season. I've been, even before UConn went independent, I've been a proponent of playing UMass every single season, not just because it's probably an easy win for the foreseeable future, but just UConn football has always been on an island by itself. Even when it was in the Big East, it never really had a natural rival where every single season you look at the schedule and you're like, oh yeah, that's UConn's rival. That's the game that I got to go to. I'm not sure if UMass will ever be exactly that. It's never going to be Ohio State, Michigan. It's never going to be even the conflict. Of course. But <laughs> I think it is <laughs> I think it is nice a nice regional rivalry and I think it would be good to have a spring game in general in 2021, but having a different team to play against where it's going to be a more competitive game than the glorified scrimmage that the blue white game generally is. I think they should do everything that they can to make that happen and just pump it out as big as they can because even though it might be a spring game, it might not actually count for anything. I feel like, as assuming you're allowed to have them, I think you could actually get a pretty good fan draw for that, even if you sold tickets. And I think just from a financial standpoint, the athletic department obviously needs money. So I think it's just a really nice idea all around. Yeah, I don't have much to add on that other other than they have saved me a whole bunch of nasty, mean, insulting text messages that my friends send me. Uh, living out here in the Midwest, I have Louisville football, which is decent. I have Ohio State up there. I have Michigan, you know, even further up there. I'm in a college football hotspot. And there's always, well, how's UConn doing? Or like, are you, are you there yet? Or like, what's going on? There's always these condescending, rude questions. What league and, are they in right now? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's terrible. You know, I have all of my gambling friends being like, I am always, always bet the over on UConn because they always get creamed. I have a full fall off from that. In fact, even I, I played golf on Saturday. And everybody was checking their scores and, and seeing how everything was going. Someone's like, how's UConn doing? Just two words, canceled season. That's it. Yeah. No, no grief, no nothing, because it, you know, they made a decision that you can't harp on. And that was that. And as far as the spring game is concerned, I totally agree with Connolly. Any sport, especially I think one you know, at football, that, like you said, is on an island you need to establish your local and re- regional rivals. It's so, you know, you, you have to play the UMasses, you have to play the schools nearby that people can go to, and, you know, that, that draws people in. So a spring game in, against UMass, I'm all for that. You know, beat the school up there and move on and, and try to gain some momentum, you know, for 2021. Yeah, I mean um... – 
you know, kind of you talked about covering it, but I mean, I, I feel so much for the fans who show up every single week, people who go with season tickets. Um, I love to tailgate at the rent. Um, and pretty much my, uh, what, what I would say from, from my time going as a fan is those tailgates are my, have been my favorite part. And, uh, what goes on inside the stadium? Not so much. Just with the way that the the rebuilding project was going, whether or not this was going to be a turnaround season, there were clearly still so, so, so many growing pains to be had. I mean, the quarterback situation, we're talking about a bunch of unproven guys, unproven sophomores fighting for, for playing time there. Like, just really, at the end of the day, uh, this – this UConn team, hey, maybe a season off is is what's good and healthy for the program. And uh, everyone can just get bigger, stronger. They cannot take the um, moral hits that come with 60-point losses on a week-to-week basis. Uh, they can stay healthy. They can watch some other college football teams. I mean, I, I genuinely enjoy the rest of college football outside of UConn and uh, frankly, it's just been it's just been lovely. Uh, I, I I would say that to anyone who's a UConn fan right now, fan of football, the game. Uh, you know, go go check out some of the college football going on out there. Now, there is of course the 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 moral aspect of all of this, where you know not only are we feeling fine about not necessarily having to watch UConn football, I think we all can feel pretty proud of the athletic department at least for. Um, making this decision, making a, a tough decision not to have the season. Players are transferring out. There is probably a financial hit for the university, uh, for the athletic department that they're taking. But, um, you know, give credit where credit's due. They, they are doing the right thing. Um, you know, we, we can be cynical about it and say that part of the reason that it's the right thing is because they would have so much uncertainty around games with everyone playing their conference schedule only, even freaking Notre Dame is part of a conference this this season. Is it safe to play tackle football, to travel with 150 people to go play tackle football in the middle of a, a pandemic? Uh, no, it's it's not. And we know that. We, we see teams all over the country that have, uh, what was it, Texas Tech, 75 players tested positive. We're seeing that. We're seeing a lot of that. So... Just to throw this part in there, I, I am proud. I am happy to know that UConn is doing something that is in line with uh, a positive moral direction that it would be great for college sports to find, especially in, in this moment. Yeah, I agree with both your points. Just, if I just touch on the part about them canceling the season first, I know UConn got a lot of flack when they made the decision that, oh, it's just they have no one to play. So they're just hiding behind the morality. Look, like we've talked a lot about Randy Edsel on this podcast. And I feel like he's pretty much reached the point in his career where he really doesn't care. He just says whatever is on his mind. So I honestly believe him when he says it was the player's decision. And I think the fact that UConn has shown no signs at all of making a decision to try and come back or even attempting to come back shows that the players still aren't on board with trying to play a season. And I think it's great that Randy Edsel gives his players a voice. I think it's great that Randy Edsel 
fights for his players, the likeness rights, all that type of thing, getting them paid. And I do actually agree with your point that this season off may help them because just from a roster building standpoint, I think the NCAA is giving blanket waivers to all fall athletes, right? So everyone's going to get an extra year. And you look at a guy like Jack Zergiatis, I don't think it was the wrong decision last year to burn his red shirt, but at the same time, he showed some flashes that he could be a really, really good quarterback, but he was also really bad at times. So I think an entire year where he can just kind of practice, not have to worry about making mistakes in games that lose, lose games and just continue building up his confidence could be really good. And obviously that goes with every other quarterback and every other player on the team. I mean, how much is it going to help all those guys that Randy Edsel burned their red shirt on defense two years ago when he said that they didn't have anyone else? All those guys are now going to get their red shirts back. The guys are going to be able to spend a lot more time in the locker room. You'd hope that they're going to get a lot more one-on-one close coaching when there's not game plans that need to be installed. There's not players that need to be given more priorities with more snaps because they're going to be playing more in games. I hope that the coaching staff can really work with every single player a lot more closely and help build them that way. So, and on top of that, you don't have the demoralization of losing 67 to 13 week in and week out. So maybe Randy Edsel's plan of just getting a lot of young players in, getting the players that fit his system and, the players that he feels are UConn football type players. Now he has them all here. He's got an extra year with all of them. He's basically going to have two classes of freshmen. I think it's a really good step for the program, but at the same time, I think it also heightens expectations for 2021 because if you're not playing for an entire year and all these guys have an extra year to develop and you come out and you go two and 10 or even three and nine in 2021, like that's that would be a really, 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 really bad sign. Yeah, it does. It does definitely put a lot of pressure on this year. On that year, I mean, I think even if let's say again, alternate dimension that there is a normal season, um, there would be pressure on this season because now we'd be talking about what year four under Edsel and uh, how much better has it gotten? He blew it up, uh, and then what? Blew it up again. Um, who knows? Uh, another thing worth noting is just that um, there are not a ton of seniors on this roster. And then, as you mentioned, they all have waivers. So uh, even though those people are seniors and, and some may have professional aspirations, uh, there were no bona fide NFL prospects in that group. I don't want to cast too much of judgment. Obviously, they're, they're, these guys had their senior seasons yet to be. Uh, guys like Omar Fort, um, Ryan Vend- Vandemark, maybe we could see um, doing something, but they were definitely fringe NFL draft prospects. Um, so, you know, all those guys get another year. There's no one who's, who's you know, oh my God, this guy was going to be in the NFL and now this was going to be his last college season. And now, you know, there's none of that. That's happening at Ohio State. That's happening at Florida State. That's not that's not happening at UConn. So um, the, the other thing is just like when, when the news about UMass came out, I was like, why, who, who asked for this? 
have, have the people on the streets been clamoring for six frenzied scheduled games of UMass football where they'll have no, no time to prepare for? Like, I, I don't even get the point. Uh, you know, at least the Big Ten is like, well, they got public pressure one way and they canceled and then they got public pressure another way and put it on. Nobody is asking for this UMass football 2020 redux. And uh, hopefully it doesn't impact their ability to play what would be a very interesting and fun and well-attended game, as we have discussed, the following spring, which would count for the 2020 season. So um, we also did get some news, though. I think part of what it might be for UMass, if I had to guess, um, is that any there's no win requirement to make a bowl game this year. So maybe that's why UMass uh, wanted to get in and uh, hop on the bowl gravy train. But other than that, I, I cannot fathom why UMass would decide to return after deciding to cancel their season. We're going to take a quick ad break, then come back and talk UConn men's basketball. All right, we now get to do our favorite part of the podcast discussion these days. So much good news for the UConn men's basketball team. It's been a fantastic summer. They have been hot on the recruiting trail. They officially joined the Big East. We've got great opponents on the schedule. Um, And we found out that there is going to be a basketball season. We even have a start date for it, November 25th. Um, And and as if there could not be more, uh, UConn got a little bit more good news when the waiver for URI transfer Tyrese Martin was approved. So uh, the wing player will be eligible for the Huskies this season. Let's start with that, guys. What do we think about adding Tyrese Martin to this already really good lineup? I think it definitely gives Tyler Polly basically a lot more time and a lot less pressure to come back full strength. Martin is proven at a, a pretty high level in, in the A-10, and you know, has shown to be a double-digit score, plus rebounder. You can plug him in right away, and he will go get you a bucket. So he will round things out. And, you know, in addition to taking pressure off Tyler Polly, he takes pressure off of James Booknight, who is supposed to ascend. But, again, you, you, you have to give someone as young as him some time. He's not going to immediately step in and be the man. So in some situations where he's off, you now have that safety valve that Martin can be to go and get you a bucket while at the same time fitting Dan Hurley's mold of being a tough defensive minded gang rebounder. Um, So it's a huge, huge plus and it just rounds out their depth. So well, you look at their, you know, their starting five and their bench, you can't tell what's, which one's which and how many teams in the NCAA this year, can you say have that depth? Right. I think there's pretty much maybe one or two guys that that you'd feel pretty good are going to be in the starting lineup. One of which I think James Booknight's an easy one. And then from what it sounds like, RJ Cole's probably going to be penciled in there. And even if Tyler Gaffney has a really good off season and looks good, I still think RJ Cole is the starter. But one of the things that crossed my mind when the news came through was when was the last time UConn had a roster this deep where you felt like every player on the roster, all 13 were actually going to contribute to the team. And 
they haven't even really had many teams that have had 13 scholarship players to begin with. So TCF, the GOAT, looked it up. Technically, two years ago, the 2018-19 team had all 13 scholarships accounted for, but that includes Quinton Williams, who played in seven games and then got banished to who knows where. Mamadou Diarra. True. Mamadou Diara, who only appeared in two games because of his knee issues. Isaiah Whaley, who just barely saw the court that season, says he played in 23 games, but only averaged 3.6 minutes per game. And then also Kasum Yakwe, who I think he was hurt to start the year, came in, got hurt again, and never came back. So it's really kind of pushing it to say they had a full 13-man roster, even though 13 players technically did play that season. The most realistic one is probably the 2006-2007 team that had Jeff Adrian, Jerome Dyson, Hashim Thabit, A.J. Price, Craig Ostry, Doug Wiggins, Stanley Robinson, Marcus Johnson, Curtis Kelly, Gavin Edwards, Jonathan Mandeldove, Ben Eves, and Rob Garrison. Also, the 2002 team, 2002-2003 team could also say that, but Scott Hazelton, as TCF points out, transferred early into the season. So this could be, in terms of pure depth, could honestly be the deepest UConn team. Maybe not of all time. I can't speak for the West Bielasuknia, however you say his name, teams in the 1960s. I can't really speak for before Calhoun either, but at least in the la- in the 21st century, this could really, really be the deepest team that we've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the fact that, you know, we really can't even – we could not even outline what a starting lineup would be. I mean, I think you have a good, good conversation. I mean, it's really going to be about the matchup because it depends if you want to start smaller. Um, you know, you could, you could have Polly at the four or Carlton at the four, depending on how you want to be. But I mean, to have a, co- a cook, um, Polly and book night, you know, and then just, all these other dudes who can contribute and, and are potentially so good. RJ Cole, Brendan Adams, Isaiah Whaley. People are saying Andre Jackson is going to be, you know, another immediate contributor book night type. Um, the backup young bigs uh, that, you know, it's, it, it really is incredible. And um, you know, with a season coming up, that is going to be a weird one. Um, and where college basketball, I mean, experience is at such a premium uh, length is at such a premium. UConn has both of those things. I, I am having a very hard time preventing myself from talking about very, very lofty postseason aspirations, if I'm being honest with you guys. I'm right there with you, man. It's um, haven't been this excited since the, I think it was the 15, 16 year where I think it was Adams in his sophomore year and they had Sterling Gibbs and Sean Miller. You know, that team I think was preseason 17 in the country. That's, I think, a ceiling for this team, at least uh, during the regular season. One worry and one non-worry I'll go over. Uh, One worry I have, and this is a great problem to have, but Hurley's going to have to manage some egos here. People will not be getting the minutes that they usually would or they did in their previous years. Uh, Brandon Adams has people breathing down his throat. Josh Carlton and Isaiah Whaley have 
Sonogo and um, and a cook when he gets back and, and Javante Brown Ferguson, if, if he doesn't redshirt, um, you know, th- there is people pushing for minutes at every single slot. And now you add Martin into the mix with Polly and Jackson. So there's going to be some unhappy people who want to play more. That's on Dan Hurley to kind of massage those egos and make sure that everyone's kind of on the same page. And as you know, as we all know, I think he's well equipped to do that, which leads to the point that I'm not worried about is you mentioned the weird season with what looks like for now, you know, no fans foreseeable future. I don't see a lot of other coaches that have the fire and the ability to motivate like Dan Hurley does. And I think if there's anyone that can get this team ready to run through a wall with no gamble fans, no, no civic center fans, uh, you know, no rowdy home, home, you know, away crowd in Villanova or Xavier, it's Dan Hurley. Dan Hurley is the perfect man to get this team fired up, ready to have to play at an empty gym. So that's, again, I think adding to the excitement is it's all really falling into place ahead of schedule. Yeah. And then as we have seen from recruiting, uh, looks to be in good shape for the foreseeable future. What is this feeling? Uh, like you're saying, it cannot even think about the last time we were this excited, 2015, 2016, even then we knew that team had limits. Like I, ha- I had to hold myself back and I, and with friends, I was like, guys, I mean, this could be a sweet 16 team. And it's just, you know, we grew up in a, in an era where, and by we grew up, I mean, mid to late 2000s UConn attenders, uh, or, or if you were in college at that time, we grew up in kind of like a, the sweet 16 was like an expectation for UConn almost every year. Um, now Calhoun, you know, had his thing where he, you know, built, built up teams and cycled them and they got good. And then, you know, so it wasn't, it wasn't so fluid like that, but the expectations really were that high every year. Um, and it's taken some time to build them back, but here we are in the Big East with the Dan Hurley rebuilding project well on its way, and basketball season cannot get here soon enough, folks. Don't let you kind of get hot. I'm paraphrasing Hurley's quote went after the Villanova game, but don't, don't let those Huskies get hot. We're coming. We're coming. We'll take one more ad break and then a conversation with former UConn men's basketball player Jonathan Mandelduff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the UConn Pods Fast Break Conversation. This is Amon Kidwai, and I'm very pleased to be joined here by a special guest. He's a former player on the UConn men's basketball team and a current high school basketball head coach. Jonathan Mandeldove, thank you so much for joining me. Man, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to speak on a podcast. Hopefully everyone is having a great day. Uh, well, we're doing the best we can. And I hope you are as well. Um, Jonathan, you were part of the Huskies from 2006 to 2010. Very interesting uh, time for that program. Um, let's let's kind of go back in time as far back as we can we can try to remember. What was what was your motivation for picking UConn way back in the day? Ooh, ooh. I mean, I, I've heard this question uh, <laughs> at least a thousand times, man, and 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 a thousand times I've always led back to UConn. Uh, during the time, and I have to be blunt, um, if, if this school were to have been, you know, you know, if I would have attracted this school, it would kind of put me at odds 
but the University of Illinois uh, was a, was actually my first dream school. UConn was my second dream school. Uh, University of Illinois was my first dream school, and they never recruited me. Hmm. And I remember having a game in Houston, Texas. No, in Dallas, in Dallas, Texas. And I had a phenomenal game. I felt great about myself. I, you know, I, I really didn't pay attention to who was watching the game and why they were watching the game. And I remember my dad, you know, giving me a call later on that night was like, hey, UConn just came in and, and want to talk to you and want to offer you. And I was like, UConn? Like, the UConn that we just saw, you know, uh, four years, you know, a year ago, win a national championship, UConn. And he was like, yeah, that UConn. And I was like, the UConn that won a championship in 99, that UConn. <laughs> and I just went down to history. Um, and, and I picked the school. When I got to the school, I never had, I've never in my life been to the uh, East Coast, let alone the New England area. And when I came here, um, I just looked around and I visited, you know, unofficially Missouri. I visited at the time when Coach Kyle was at University of Memphis, um, you know, UGA, Georgia Tech. I, I visited Florida State. I visited some of these other schools. And um, when I got to UConn, like, I just looked around and was like, this is it. You know, and, and I and I remember telling my father, I said, this, this is it. This is this is where I, I'm most comfortable with as far as the surroundings. I'm I'm not necessarily feeling like it's a burden. Um I, I wanted to commit Saturday night to Coach Calhoun and my father made was like, wait, wait until Sunday, Sunday before we leave and let him know. And, and, you know, things happen, had a great time Saturday with the, with the guys. And then Sunday, Sunday morning, before I headed back on to uh, going to Hardgrave Military Academy, I told Coach Calhoun that I'm coming to UConn next year. This wow. is it. Amazing. This is it. So, um, you know, Jim Calhoun, a legendary head coach. Uh, he's, you know, he, Everyone knows that um, when when a coach is recruiting you uh, versus that second you, the day you step on campus, the, t the tide changes a little bit. So, um, and, and I think Jim Calhoun might be legendary for for making that turn. So, can you just share kind of what that experience is like for freshmen? Uh, <laughs> hell on wheels. Uh, in, in a good way, you know, it, it, it was, the funny thing is, right, and, and I remember, I remember somebody saying it, or, or somebody mentioned it to me, and they were like, you know, he's going to be tough, he's going to be tough, and I'm like, well, let me tell you a story about my high school coach, my high school to coach, you know, automatically told me, he's like, son, excuse my language, but when you're on a basketball court, you're a piece of shit to me. But when you're off the court, I'm going to love you like you're my own. And I, that was the first time that, you know, as far as a recruitment battle or, or understanding the player-coach scenario, I was like, 
oh wow, this is this is what it is, and this is the level that I have to obtain in order to gain a, enough respect from my coach and my peers to let them know that I'm a contributing member of not only this society but this this program. And when I got to UConn, it was it was great because we had eight other guys that were freshmen that were going through the exact same thing. So Coach Calhoun, in his mindset, he couldn't necessarily say, freshman, 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 look at you guys screwing up and all the sophomores, juniors, and seniors on the team are freaking killing it. Mm -hmm. We didn't have any seniors. Right. We, we only had, we have four, maybe, no, four, four sophomores, you know, shout out to those guys, Rob Garrison, Jeff Adrian, you know, Marcus Johnson, you know, uh, AJ Price, but AJ Price really didn't even play. So technically he was the ninth, you know, freshman. <laughs> that was his first year of actually playing. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and Craig Austria, I don't know if I said Craig, Craig Austria. Um, and so with, with those guys, it was kind of like a learning process for everybody because everybody was in, in new roles that, um, you know, if hindsight was 2020, I, I, I don't think Coach Calhoun actually pictured in the, in, in the fall of 05 going into, I mean, in the fall of 06 going into 07, that he wouldn't have a senior on the team yeah. nor junior and nothing but sophomores and freshmen. Yeah, so what was that like? I mean, you know, those UConn yep. teams, um, you know, you're like you mentioned, coming off a lot of success for the program, and then you kind of had a, a class reset. So what was that experience like? You know, you know what? That experience was like a dogfight each and every day. Um, the dogfights would be amongst us as players and then as coaches, you know, trying to figure out who's going to give a little and then who's going to take a lot, you know, and, and figuring out that pecking order of who's the man, who's behind the man, and who think they are the man, and then who's playing the role of supporting those men, you know. And, and I think that uh, for my first couple of years, it was, you know, really a support. I mean, for my years at UConn, it was a support role um, that I found myself in, being a reserve and, uh, you know, helping out my teammates become the best team player that they can possibly be while also becoming you know a teammate mm -hmm. but I think that um the mantra and 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 how we carried ourselves on the court and you know just that grittiness we weren't the prettiest of teams uh to watch it, you know from having the success to you know struggling to find our identity as a, a new age team during that time, you know, which is still would be considered part of the old Big East, you know, the last of the old Big East, um, you know, was great because we were all trying to figure out life, you know, let alone basketball as young adults um, in college. And, and, you know, there were stories of guys, you know, fist to cuff, you know, uh, getting into little scuffles here and there. And, and if you and, and if we weren't doing that, we weren't playing. We weren't being competitive. We weren't, you know, in each other's face. We weren't trying to challenge each other. And everybody was okay with the status quo 
oh, I made it. This is a Yukon uniform. This is something that's given, not earned. Yeah. And that wasn't and, – and, and Coach Calhoun made sure – I kid you not, I think our first day of practice is like hell week. It's like the first day of hell. And we're practicing in the old uh, – in the, in the, in the uh, field house. And we're running. Like, the practice is literally run, 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 pass, run. The ball doesn't hit the floor. If it hits the floor, we're running 28 suicides. Move, 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 move. Everything was was on the go. You know, everything was up-tempo, 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 up-tempo. You know, and then we had to make the transition, which I love this, this, this transitional phase because in the gym for Gam- in Gamble, when we were practicing in Gamble, um, the, the practice uniforms were laid out. Now, if you if we made it to Gamble, we got to put on the practice uniform. If we didn't make it to Gamble, we had to stay in our what they 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 issued like a T-shirt that said UConn on it, athletics underneath it, and some gray uh, shorts that said UConn athletics on them. And though that was a reminder that the uniform that you thought you earned in a, in your scholarship offer you know, that, that isn't the case. Like you gotta, you gotta get through this, you know, you know, running Cemetery Hill, you know, Cemetery Hill was more of a joint exercise to make sure guys literally communicated and stayed together and, and, and pushed each other. You know, it, it was always that factor when it came to that unity piece that we had to wake up Saturday morning you know, making sure that we're not out one, two, three o'clock at night, Friday night, you know, as a college student, we want to be college students. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, waking up that morning, run it at 8.40 and being on the, you know, at the bottom of that hill at 8.30, you know, it, it made you aware of one, your time and how precious it is, two, your rest and how important that is, and then three, your hydration and how you, your meal prep and, and, and what you're eating, fueling your body with, because those things kind of uh, put together the package that you see from guys like Kimball Walker, mm-hmm. you know, going into his 10th year now in the NBA, um, doing what he's doing right now in the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, you know, that preparation was all started right in stores, Connecticut. You mentioned kind of, you know, you, you settled into um, a role as, as a reserve and, and obviously everyone has their journey, right? You know, mm-hmm. they come to UConn and, and I know this from covering recruiting, just seems like most kids, they come in and they, they plan on being a superstar, right? And then mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. things change. And, and for you, you know, at least you stayed at UConn for many people, it involves transferring, you know, Mm-hmm. All of those pe- names you mentioned earlier did not end up finishing their time mm-hmm. at UConn. So um, can you can you kind of discuss that process of, you know, you come in with, with extremely high hopes for your career and uh, it's not, you know, it's not settling or anything like that. It's just kind of changing and finding your place. But, um, you know, what was that experience like? It certainly, you know, probably was not the first thing on your mind is that that's how you're playing time would play out right when you first got you know you 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 know the craziest thing was I 
I truly honestly, if I, I, I would be lying to you if I told you that mentally I was prepared to go in and say I was going to be playing X amount of minutes coming right out of high school. Yeah. Um, I wasn't. You know, I, I know when, when I sat down with Coach Calhoun, the, the biggest comparison um, for me, for a guy that was in the program prior to me, was Hilton Armstrong, you know, a guy that pretty much burst onto the scene his senior year, mm-hmm. you know, and got better and played, played against NBA players, you know, throughout his career, you know, when, he, and when it was his time, you know, he showcased what he learned from those, playing against those guys. Um, so when, when I got recruited, that was kind of the, the forecast. And I remember watching Hilton the year before that during that year of 05 going into the spring of 06 and falling in love with the process that he went through and then hearing about his story, you know, off the court, it was just, it it spoke to me, you know, more so than anybody else's because I wasn't, you know, yes, I was a top 100 recruit, top 150 recruit in in the country when I was coming out of high school. But, um, you know, I, I was more or less a person that was loyal to the people that was loyal to me in regards to understanding the the plan that they have for me. And, 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 and I'll be lying to say that I didn't have family members pulling at me saying, hey, you know, freshman year, okay, but your sophomore year, you don't really play that much. We might have to, you know, transfer, you, you know, it, it may be a good look to just yeah. get you out of there. And, you know, I remember distinctively telling them, I'm like, transfer where? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, it, it, you know, it'd be one thing if Coach Calhoun did not want me and just said, hey, look, this isn't for you. Yeah. Okay. Simple as that. I'm going to be honest with you, kid. This isn't for you. And he's a blunt person where, he will sit down and tell you, hey, we looked at the optics of everything and this doesn't help you as a man become the guy that you want to become. And I'll help you get into a school that will help you be the guy that you want to be, you know. And that's the thing when it comes down to recruitment and, and playing at UConn and the reason why I was so loyal, uh, to Coach Calhoun, and now to Coach Calhoun, to Coach Sellers, to Coach Moore, uh, to Coach LaFleur, to Coach Blaney, uh, Coach Ben Wood, uh, who was a grad assistant. Uh, I mean, and, and several other guys that have gone on and, 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 you know, are now in other roles in life and things of that nature, even down to the managers that we had. Um, that's why I was loyal to them uh, more so than anything, because there was that brutal honesty that I had to get better, but I had to, it was things that were in my control that I had to do. And, uh, and during the recruitment process, it wasn't any fluff. You know, it wasn't, hey, you know, it's going to be glamorous a little bit. You're going to be able to play 20, 25 minutes starting out. You know, then we'll, you know, rotate some other guys. In. It, it wasn't any fluff. and. Um, I appreciated that because it let me know, you know, going back to that, that saying that my high school coach had, Hey, when you're on the court, you're shit to me. But when you off the court, you mean the world to me because I'm, I'm going to figure out 
how to make the, you, you the best man that you can possibly be. And that's all that you ask for, yeah. you know, and, and hoping that, you know, that comes with respect and into recruitment. And, and a lot of the times, a lot of the guys kind of, you know, I was the first, I remember I was the first big to commit outside of, I want to say either Stanley Robinson or Curtis Kelly. Um, and when I did that, I was like on the depth chart as number one center. And then Hashim came and Gavin Edwards came, you know, right after me. And um, then it was like, okay, it's a balancing act on this depth chart and, and, and doing those things. And, you know, Hosh is seven foot three and, you know, yeah. being talked about being an NBA player because of his size and where he's come from in Africa and things of that nature. And then, um, you know, Gav was a, was a, a West Coast face-up big that can shoot the ball and, you know, do all these other intricate pieces, you know, pieces that you ask for bigs to do now. And so, you know, dealing with those guys in practice was, was great because you got to play against, you know, different styles of bigs, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and so in that recruitment piece, you know, what a lot of guys got to understand during that time was, you know, the Big East had versatility when it came to the bigs. Uh, you know, the guys like Jeff Green, who's still playing in the league, you know, was playing the four at Georgetown, you know, so we had to be versatile, <laughs> you know, and have these guys, in, you know, as far as recruit, recruitment goes, um, having these guys that are able to defend and also offensively be able to give us what we needed to get out of the post, you know, cause that was what UConn was hanging their hat on for the last, you know, three to four years where they dominated the post. You know, we led the country in block shots for two or three years. And, you know, we, we had the number one defender in the country, you know, one year. And so, you know, those things, you know, prior to me coming to UConn was evident and, and they were posted and talked about and, mention you know defensively UConn was known as one of the top five defensive teams in the country yeah you know I mean one of the things about about Jim Calhoun that maybe even goes a little bit underrated is just the whole thing of how he built up a program at UConn that really didn't have much much history behind it so when when you think about you know what his what he's like what his coaching style is like Mm -hmm. um, you know, and now you're a coach yourself. What can you say about what Jim Calhoun has done uniquely to succeed and, and, you know, why you think he was able to build up a program again with no, no historical backing pretty much out of nowhere. Um, I, I would say this, he is a psychological genius. <laughs> um, and, and, and the reason being two, two reasons being, one, he's able to paint a picture that nobody else can see. And then two, he can make the figures that are on a board or whether in a game move the way that he needs them to move. And he knows how to motivate those. And he figures out how to motivate those to do the things that they need to do. Um, and, and those two things right there were have always been evident over the you know 
28, 30 years that he's been coaching, he coached at UConn um, prior to his retirement that, that made UConn successful. Yeah. Psychologically, he, he can get his guys to do what they need to do, but he makes sure that he paints a picture of success. If you believe in him, that I believe that most coaches envy and, you know, trying to build, like you right now, you couldn't get me, give me three coaches outside of, and I will say, well, technically yes, but technically no. Mark Few at Gonzaga, that program was actually built before him and had foundation um, going into his era of Gonzaga. But uh, you can tell me another program that came out of nowhere that garnered national attention year in and year out that was, that's in the what, the second or third smallest state in, in the United States? Yeah. You know, there, there, isn't, there isn't one, you know, and I think what isn't talked about in, 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 in uh, you know, as far as the, the basketball Mount Rushmore, to me, I think Coach Calhoun is on the basketball Mount Rushmore, not because I played for him, but because what he has done with the amount of resources that he had. Yeah. Um, he was limited. You, you're talking about power five, limit, the, mo the limited amount of resources that he had. He may do with what he had, you know, with the guys that, you know, he brought in, the coaching staff that he was able to bring in and, and, and nurture and, and build and groom. Because you, you had guys like Coach Moore, you know, Tom Moore was with him for, you know, I want to say 14 years almost. Yeah. You know, so that's a guy that was groomed, 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 groomed. Then he got his opportunity to go to Quinnipiac. Yeah. You know, Coach Sellers, you know, got his opportunity to be an assistant coach and, and, and cut his teeth, you know, on the trail, on the recruiting trail and things of that nature. And now he's continuing on his path. And, you know, Coach LaFleur, who was coaching at UNLV um, a couple of years ago, you know, was, you know, given his, his opportunity by Coach Calhoun. Uh, the head coach, Dave Lado, you know, given his opportunity to cut his teeth out of school, you know, during its early infancy stages to, to you know, becoming the man that he is today and, and being the head coach at DePaul University. So when, when you talk about Mount Rushmore, you talk about the coaches, you know, the, the John Woodens of the world. I believe that the Dean Smiths of the world, I, I believe that wholeheartedly uh, Pat Summits, Gino Oriamas, uh, and even Gino, um, you know, those guys, they belong on the Mount Rushmore due to the simple fact that they actually built from scratch the programs more so than handed a program and told that, a, you know, financial backing is going to be there for everything that they possibly need. Mm -hmm. yeah, remar remarkably persistent individual and uh, incredibly competitive. Um, he's very he, he's very direct and I actually um you know I, I I speak to him you know uh every so often and I remember him uh giving me a call uh geez uh four years ago 
2016. I got a call and uh, he said, uh, hey, John, this is, this is Coach Calhoun. And I saw it was an A6O so number, so I was wondering if it was UConn. And, you know, we spoke for a second and he was just like, now you see what I go through. <laughs> and I laughed. <laughs> and I laughed and I said, you know what, Coach, you, you're 110% right about that. Because um, the things that we put you through, you know, I'm now going through uh, with, you know, the, the kids that I'm coaching. And, and actually during that same year, now I have a young man that was on that team that I coached that is playing at Marquette right now as a sophomore. So, um, you know, having that conversation brought back some good memories and, you know, a great laugh that I needed during that time because I was picking my head, you know, picking my hair out because of a loss that we had two nights before that I'm trying to figure out how to motivate my guys to get over that hump. Yeah. So, you know, he was the best person to, to, to talk to about that motivation. Um, I, I think, like, one, one thing, uh, you know, as far as motivating was concerned with Coach Calhoun, he utilized his family, his faith, as well as um, his struggles. Uh, I think his struggles as a, as a man and, and what he went through uh, health-wise, um, battling cancer, um, and, and, and giving back, you know, to doing, you know, having his cancer research, center uh at, at uconn health center and um and i might be wrong on, on, on that front um correct me if i am um but he he always uh, brought little motivational tools and, and i remembered on this distinctive day it was it was a thursday and we were uh beginning practice we all were you know walking up together after shooting around and talking some mess to each other <laughs> and um, coach got us together and said, you know, said his his couple of words of inspiration. And, and he always has a quote. He has a quote of the day every day. It's a different quote. Now, I, I couldn't tell you the quote, which is perfectly fine. Um, but as we started to kind of go through the motions, he brought us back together again. And this time, it was it was kind of eerie because we're like, oh shoot, we're about to get cursed out. We we just going through the motion, and 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 it wasn't actually. It was the funniest thing. He points up into the bleachers and in Gamble, and right below the scoreboard is a family of three that's sitting, and they're in Yukon jerseys and shirts and. You know, he says, you, you know, those two parents up there are some strong people. He said, but the strongest person lies right in between them. And it's the young lady. It's a young girl. It was a young girl. I remember this to this day. It was a young girl. And he said that she has a terminally ill cancer. At state, I think she's at stage three. But it's one of those cancers where they're just trying to figure out ways of operating on. And one of her favorite pastimes is watching UConn basketball with her dad. And he said, she doesn't know 
if she, every time that she goes to bed, whether or not she's going to wake up tomorrow. To do what she loves to do. You guys are given an opportunity to do what you love to do. To wake up and be blessed and be able to run up and down the court, dunk a ball, shoot a basketball, block a shot. I re and and it, it was, we were all like kind of dumbfounded, you know, because what do you say <laughs> at that point? You're talking about a little girl who probably is no older than maybe six years old, seven, you know, and it was, it was great because then I remember the energy and the practice just picked up dramatically. You know, the coaches were in, like, everybody was just, the enthusiasm was something that he, he preached all the time. It was never about putting the basket, uh, the ball in the basket. It was enthusiasm for life because the game that we played was our fuel and our, for, for this passion that we had for this game. And I, I, I distinctively remember that day because I remember how much the word enthusiasm truly meant to me as a player, but really what it meant to him to live his life and the values that he had for himself as a man, let alone a coach, let alone a, a mentor and a father. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think... Um it was it's been clear that uh Jim Calhoun really did take a lot of care with his players uh and and even in being involved in their lives after their career kind of like how you you shared um you know how he called you with some coaching <laughs> coaching tips but uh um you know one of those examples is uh with your former teammate Stanley Robinson who who did mm -hmm. we got the sad news mm -hmm. of his passing earlier this summer um, and, and he was someone as well who, who we all know had a great passion for the game uh, and mm. an ability to, to draw enthusiasm uh, with the way that he played. Um, anything you want to say or share about, about your former teammate? In the way he, he embodied what the UConn and enthusiasm and passion was. Um, if I can pinpoint any player that's not Kimba Walker, that's not Ray Allen, that's not Rip Hamilton, uh, that's not Khalid Alameen, I mean, Rudy, uh, Rudy Gay, you know, Emeka Okafor. If I can really pinpoint a true UConn player that embodied what UConn was all about, as far as defense, offense, passion for the game. Uh, it was Stanley Robinson. Uh, I, I, I distinctively remember countless times. We never really ran a play for Stanley. <laughs> Didn't need to. Never. Never ran a play for Stanley at all. Or Sticks, as we called them. Yeah. And... Sticks and body fat was, was one that was so unselfish that you rarely heard him talked about, I can't do this, I can't do that because I can't touch the ball. Rarely did you hear him speak about that. And he was all, he was excited for everything, 
every little thing, it was like Christmas to him. <laughs> it, it, like it, it, it was, it was just one of those things. And I re, I even remembered um, <laughs> uh, during the final four, we had, I think, was it the final four? No, it was during the dinner for the Sweet 16. And I did an impersonation of, of Stanley because, you know, Stanley whispers and when he talks and it's just like, man, how you doing, man? <laughs> and and, and, and it, it's, you know, it was just one of those things that, that that's how he spoke to people and, and, and engaged people whenever he, you know, engaged folks that were out there. But uh, but Stanley embodied what it meant to be a UConn basketball player when it talked about enthusiasm, when it talked about working hard on the court, you know, and 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 being selfless. I think that's the key word, selfless. Uh, you know, him giving up his body for rebounds and put back dunks and steals and defensive stops and you know just all these little things that sometimes make may go unnoticed to the naked eye but to us it was just like man this dude here whew, he's gonna get he's gonna give it his all even though his all may not be the best yeah he i mean uh I, as we meant as we discussed uh i i went to yukon around the same time uh and mm-hmm. so i i know for a fact that he was so many people's favorite player from that era um mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. It sounds like from your story you know many people's favorite person you know just full stop mm-hmm. um and i think something that always stands out from the fan perspective about him is the way he was forced to take some time away from the program and ended up earning his way back onto the team um could you, could you just share from from your experience yeah like what it was like to to see that know that was happening Man. like what did he do when he wasn't you know with the team how did you guys see him and then you know what was it like once he came back you know uh, when that transpired it was kind of out of the the blue because uh, we're not all I mean you know players you're not a part of the decision making process for things like that yeah. but um he, you know, he worked his ass off, man, uh, working the scrap yard, <laughs> you know, making ends meet, you know, yeah. staying humble, you know, humility, having that humility, you know, coach has ways of just humbling people, you know, in, 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 in helping guys understand why you have to be humble and have that humility in order to succeed in life, let alone this game of basketball. And when we saw him going through that process, I remember it was times like, uh, you know, he would come in late into his apartment late at night. And, you know, I, that'd be the first time I've seen him, <laughs> you know, and then waking up and he's not there, wow. you know, or waking up on a Saturday, you know, uh, waking up on a Saturday and he is, um, you know, going to work, and we're like, <laughs> "What? We're going to break. We're going to brunch. We're going. We're all go- <laughs> going to grab brunch while you're going to work." And and to see him go through that and him not complain, you know, other guys. I- I'll be honest with you. I mean, today's age now, 
if they if, if your coach told you to take some time away from the team and 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 reevaluate who you are as a person, a lot of young men will will transfer. Yeah. Cuz they they believe that the coach doesn't be, doesn't believe in him. No, the coach sees something greater in him. He's just not seeing you obtain that greatness due to the simple fact of extracurricular activities that you're doing or not doing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, so when we saw him, when, when we knew he was coming back, you know, I want to say it was like January 1st or 2nd or something like that. We were ecstatic. <laughs> we were ecstatic as a team. We were ecstatic as a program. You know, because we were going through shifts and, and some guys were getting banged up, you know, was hurt and, and, and you know, couldn't do much. And, and that's when actually during that time, we end up losing uh, Jerome Dyson, yeah. I want to say. We, we end up losing Jerome Dyson, and, you know, and that was going on that Final Four run. It was just like, man. To see that happen and, and 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 how it transpired, and I remember we had we only had like eight guys in practice. I'm like, good <laughs> lord, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, everybody's important. Everybody's role is important on this team. But uh, to see him during that time um, work his ass off, one, you know, work his ass off and not complain about any situation. Did he? Did he? probably had moments of doubt oh definitely we all we all did but um again he persevered um he pushed through he you know obtained the goals and objectives that coach set out for him and he 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 did what he needed to do in order to be a contributing member to the UConn program yeah yeah and you know incredibly sad to hear of his of his passing and you know, he was really clearly trying to stay, stay in the game of basketball and working really hard to do that. Yeah, you know, um, his departing, um, it's, it's not a curse, but yet a gift. You know, he's always with us. Um, and, and, and knowing that, you know, he was working to be the best that he can be for himself, as well as his, his three beautiful children. Um, is something that I always remember him by more so than his passing. Um, and understanding that, that we as humans, let alone basketball players and former, you know, pros and things of that nature, we as humans, we, we have mistakes. We, we make mistakes and, and we have flaws. Um, but the biggest thing, and this is one of the things that I, I, I preach each and every day, you know, even with my story, how do you rebound? Do you rebound with one hand, one foot, two hands, two feet? How do you rebound? Because life is going to throw you an obstacle that one, you ain't going to be able to catch or two, you have to understand how to position yourself to be able to, to catch it. And if you're able to catch that rebound and, and be able to adjust from that miss that you possibly had, you're good to go. And if you can't, you know, learn from it, try to build on it 
and continue and continue to 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 push forward. You know, and and I definitely, you know, my brother definitely did that and he was definitely on his way to doing the things that he needed to do um in order to improve not only his life but his his family's life as well yeah yeah absolutely and so you know you guys uh, you mentioned um part of part of the final four team you were able to kind of go from that scrappy group of freshmen and sophomores and and um you know, really reach incredible heights. Um, but, you know, for, for you, um, I guess, how did you go about thinking about what you were going to do uh, after school? Wow. Um, I, I didn't have a true plan um, outside of just playing. You know, some you know, you just want to be a basketball player and you just want to play. Yeah, I, you know, had aspirations of, you know, testing out the NBA waters and things of that nature to see if I'm, you know, capable of being able to be a part of that association, that great association. Uh, but truly, I didn't even have a geographical location of where I wanted to go, you know, when I wanted to go there. Um, and actually, it was probably a gift and a curse because during that time that I was trying to figure out life, I ended up just start working with kids while I was still playing and, you know, heading overseas, coming back, heading overseas, coming back and just doing that, that, you know, playing that game, you know, during those times, the, the layoff times I was coaching and training, you know, young girls and young boys that were in high school. You know, and so with, with that being said, it just it just transpired into, um, you know, I was living in Georgia, training kids, really not fully engaged into what kids truly needed because I was still working on myself and figuring out my life. Then, you know, two years later, moving to Chicago, Illinois, and, you know, working at a at a elementary school and was like, you know, they had a need for a coach. And I remember I was coaching fifth and sixth grade girls and the city semifinals uh, to go to the city championship. And we end up losing by two, three, two points, actually. We end up losing the game by two points, my little fifth and sixth grade girls. And that night, I just remembered saying, I'm, I'm pretty much done with basketball playing. Now, I got a phone call a month and a half later to to work out for some teams and do some some scrimmage games and some uh, preseason games with some CBA teams to see if I can, you know, catch on with a CBA team in China. And I went to China for a month and a half and played out there versus some teams and things of that nature, but did end up not getting the call. Uh, but when I came back home, when I moved back to Chicago, I ended up, uh, overhearing a phone call conversation about a, a coaching opportunity. And I knew that mentally I was done playing basketball and I wanted to start coaching because I loved that feel, that feeling that I had when I was coaching those fifth and sixth grade girls in the, the city semifinal playoffs. 
And so I end up calling the school and just saying, hey, I, I'm cold calling. You know, I, I wanted to find out. I heard you guys got an opening here at Westinghouse High School. And I wanted to put in for the girls' head coaching position. You know, two months later, I end up getting the job. Boom, you're the head coach. <laughs> what? Really? <laughs> I thought... <laughs> I, I didn't know that you guys were going to take me serious. You know, I don't, one, I don't have, I have zero high school coaching ability uh, or experience at that time. And um, it was a fun year, man. I, I end up coaching against uh, a lady by the name of Dorothy Gators, who has over 1,100 high school wins. And she taught me a lot because when I went up against her, before I went up against her uh, competitively, I asked her a question. I said, what is your keys to success? She said, one, to have players. Two, to have really good players. Because you can't be a coach without players. And she, you know, she said she, she didn't know me, she knew of me, she knows Coach Calhoun and Coach Ariyama and all those wonderful people. Uh, but, you know, that little advice has taken me to where I am today and finding the players that I need to find to be able to be successful. And when we played against her, I end up having a girl end up going to junior college and then she finished up her last two years at Murray State nice. um, and, and so she was my first division one athlete that I coached in high school um, during that time and then from there it was just a wildfire I was the new fire was lit in me as far as you know being a player to now being a coach and to see success of others versus having success myself as a player was the new goal and you know now i'm into my seventh year um uh, i did three years i'm sorry one two three i did four years for the boys and now this is my third year coaching high school girls i've been blessed to be able to coach in the seven years that i've been coaching now over 40 collegiate athletes ranging from division three junior college division three all the way up to high major d1 yeah no it's uh it's great to see and i think um you know any any way that you can stay involved in a in a great game like basketball and like you said all the all the ways you can help other people unlock their potential that's that's an amazing gift um I, yeah go ahead no i i think that's the key that I, I found out about Coach Calhoun more so off the court, you know, seeing the guys come back and be around him and, and, and be around the program. I mean, we had guys all the way back from class of 1989 coming back and, and just hanging out around and, and seeing how Coach Calhoun was doing and seeing how the program was doing. And, and they might not have been in, you know, basketball roles at that time. Um, but just seeing those guys come back and care about what's going on or just care about 
how coach is being is being treated and vice versa gave me a a, a picture that I didn't know that I was going to have until you know I I obtained the position that I obtained back in 2014 that let me know that this is the new fire this is this is the new competition that I know that I can be successful at as well as help others with yeah. my story you know leaving you know after leaving 2010 you know not graduating from college having a you know the whole ordeal with the APR system and and not you know being a part of the problem of when the 2013 team could not compete in the uh NCAA playoffs I felt I, I, I was part of, and, 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 and I will wholeheartedly say that I was responsible during that time. Um, but, but God had another plan for me, and I ended up obtaining my college degree. Like you said, uh, <laughs> you know, it took you a while. It took me seven years coming back, and I obtained my college degree so that I can profess to the next wave of talented young men and, and young women, um, this is, you know, this process of and this love that you have for the game can do so much for you. But I believe that education will open up the doors that sometimes athletics may close. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned uh, Coach Calhoun gave you that call and said, now you know how I feel. So <laughs> what, what, what was, you know, what are some of those things that, you know, now you look back and you go, I would do that so differently now, knowing what I put coaches through by doing this. You know, what, what are those common things that players do that, that get at coaches' nerves that are so easily prevented? You, 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 you know what? Some of the things, uh, one, paying attention. Simple. Yeah. Pay attention. Okay. Uh, two, making a mistake full speed. Uh, three, communicating on the court as well as off the court consistently. Mm -hmm. uh, four, effort. Effort, effort, effort. Five, loving the, just loving the game. Loving the process of the game. Sitting down, watching it talking about it you know those are some of the things that uh, you know I know coach was referring to because that was what I was going through with guys and 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 just like oh my god what what is it today yeah. <laughs> you know what what uh you know as I'm scratching my head and I got family members like man you got some gray hair and I'm like no <laughs> uh, I'm I'm like look I'm not dying in no time soon I'm not hiding from the process that I gained wisdom but um you know those were a couple of things that when we mentioned that phone call and was just like now you see what I go through <laughs> you know you you see what I have to deal with the parents you know, yeah. the, 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 the AAU coaches, you know, the trainers, the uncles, the aunties, the girlfriends, you see what I had to go through, you yeah. know, even though it's on the high school level, you still go through it. Yeah. We still go through the same things that, that some of these college coaches are going through. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing. And yeah, I think that just that call is such a funny thing to think about him to, him deciding to pick up the phone and call you. <laughs> I, it was it was it was 
it was a weird, like, it was so weird. It was just so, and when I say so weird, it, it was just like, because you think about what you actually put him through as a player, and you're like, I'm, I'm sorry, man. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I do apologize. You know, you know, I, I could have been much of, you know, a little of an asshole, but it, it's okay. Yeah. I learned from it. I, I'm, I've, I've grown from it, you know. Yeah, it's just it's just one of those things that you kind of look back and you make a little checklist of the things that you knew that you did, you know, <laughs> well, it, whether it be on purpose or, in you know, unintentionally. But uh, yeah, <laughs> well, I think that's very relatable. There are certainly a lot of things that I'm sorry about that I did in college, uh, especially <laughs> looking back so, uh, to some of the adults that I had to answer to in my life. So I think that's very relatable. Definitely. Uh, We'll close it out with a few rapid fire questions. We'd just love to get your thoughts about some fun things relating to UConn and college basketball. So um, let's start with an easy, fun one. What was your favorite place to eat at, in stores? Ted's. <laughs> what, what at Ted's? Ooh, I, I made my own uh, uh, little, little special. I ordered my own little special combo plate of uh, chicken and how it was seasoned and and what they use with with the uh, barbecue sauce and some honey. So yeah, nice. Uh, that was that was my little go to. Yeah, I say Ted's to everyone too. I I say to Ted's <laughs> the barbecue chicken pizza. The yes, the that was the second. The barbecue chicken pizza, of course, unbelievable. That's the legend. Unbelievable. That's, that's what legends are made of. Um, Best non-UConn player you saw during your time uh, in college basketball? Ooh. Darius Butler was pretty good. <laughs> sure, yeah. Dar 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 Darius, Darius Butler was pretty good. Um, man, it, it's some guys that I'm, I'm trying to remember, like, not even, and this is even including walk-ons. Mm -hmm. uh, but so I'm, but I'm gonna have to stick with D. Butt. Darius Butler was 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 really good. He was a good athlete. Um, what was your uh, favorite arena to visit? Ooh, MSG, baby. <laughs> MSG. I mean, just to just the historical piece about it. Yeah. was, you know, evident. And then to come to find out that the darn floor is above the actual, you know, floor where you walk into, to find that out, to realize that the stadium was actually, you had to look up at the stadium, unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Up, unbelievable atmosphere every year. What about your least favorite arena to visit? I hate it. Uh, we went up to Syracuse. The dome is is stupid. Yeah, it's nasty. It, it was. <laughs> it, it's just a nasty place to go to. It's. You know what? Let me take that back. The rack, Rutgers, Rutgers gym is horrible. Mm. The floor horrible. The parquet <laughs> floor that they had on horrible. The facilities horrible. Mm. <laughs> Well, now you're not, not going not gonna to get any opposition with Syracuse or Rutgers for that choice. Uh, so good, <laughs> good, good picks. Um, and then uh, who was your least favorite coach to play against? 
Jim Behan. Yeah. Again, I would say Jim. I would say Jim Jim Beheim or uh, um, the coach at Providence at the time, Tim Welsh. Mm. It was Tim Welsh. I would have to say Tim Welsh over Jim Beheim. Let me take that back. Tim Welsh over Jim Beheim. They always had our number for some some strange reason. Every year we cannot get over the hump versus those guys. Tough times. Well, we, we persevere. Um, well, that's that's all that I had for questions. But anything anything that you wanted to share in parting, a message to UConn fans. How how are you feeling about uh, the team this upcoming year? I would say this. I'm very optimistic to see how the chemistry lies with the youth, the new uh, pieces that were brought in, the new pieces that were brought in the year before and how well they mix with the older, the seniors and, and the juniors that have been at the university for the time that they were there. Um, and, and I'm very optimistic because I'm, I'm, I'm ecstatic to see, you know, book night take that next step to being one of the great lords of UConn's lineage of players. Um, he reminds me a lot of Jeremy Lamb um in game and versatility uh, you know to see andre jackson get on the court and be a defensive hound and be another rashmel jones uh to to see um you know the bigs matriculate into being a you know a mecca or you know edmund saunders or or you know just just one of those dogs that we needed down low to, to finish out their senior year. And then also, you know, the freshmen, the really good freshmen that we got in um, to matriculate and, and work on their bodies and get ready for the collegiate season uh, is something that I look forward to seeing, man. I think we have the pieces to be a special team uh, with the experience and the youth. Um, I, I just hope and pray that uh, during the middle of the season, more so than the beginning, that we find our footing and we hit the ground running like we, I know we should be running. Um, last year was definitely, definitely a special season as far as turning the, uh, turning the page and, 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 getting, oh, and finding ways of being able to win games when he needed to win games. And, uh, competing games that, you know, were bang, bang all the way down to the, you know, down the stretch. Uh, and, and so I, I look forward to seeing those things improve. I, I look forward to seeing our shooting improve. And uh, I look forward to just competing, you know, seeing them compete and, and, and ruin those guys on from afar. Yeah. And they're back in the Big East. We're we're excited for that as well, right? We're, we're the A. Welcome, welcome to the new Big East, but it is the Big East, let alone. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited for that as well to see the see those uh, see that title on the floor again um, after you know it was brought up to put on the American, which mm -hmm. don't get me started was just Conference USA all over again. Um, don't get me started either. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't end well. Don't, don't get me started. But 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see those guys back. I think that the Big East was, was trending in the right – had been trending in the right direction um, in the last four years. Totally. And I, I think that with UConn coming back into the fold, it, it's just going to topple over some of, some of the other conferences that are out there due to the simple fact that now that top to bottom, the conference can really say that it is a strong Power Five conference. Excellent. Well, Mr. Mandelov, thank you so much for your time, for sharing your story. Uh, wish you all the best uh, as you assume the role of head coach for the women's basketball team at the Winchenden School. I hope you have a great season. And, yeah. uh, have a good, and I hope to be in touch soon. Yes. Hey, guys, please follow the Girls, uh, girls Winchenden Hoops um, on Twitter which is the Twitter page for the Winchman Girls Basketball Program. This program ran by myself. And if you have any young ladies that's looking for a program, um, looking to learn from a guy that's been around, did some things, and is continuing to improve each and every day, please give me a, a shout, Coach Dove 32 on Twitter. Thank you, guys. Thank you for, for entrusting in me and having this conversation. Thank you. I appreciate y'all. Y'all have a blessed day.